Well, as you give consideration to some of the things that I just prayed through, whether it's the California legislature, whether it's seeing the actions of the Chinese government against our brothers and sisters, whether it's despair from what seems like the folly of two days' worth of debates this week, or the despair that comes to know that perhaps the sitting president may yet have another four years. I don't know where you are in these things. The indisputable proof yet is that wickedness is all around us. And we see all around us in our own nation and in the nations around the world of individuals and governments raising their voices and leveraging their resources against the Lord's anointed and against His people. When you see these things come across your news feed, or perhaps if you're a more social media type, they come across your Facebook feed or Twitter feed or whatever feed you look at, what is your response when you see these things? Does it upset you? Does it lead you to despair? Does it lead you to pray? Or perhaps do you look at it and just think, yep, another day, another tragedy, and does it just kind of lull you into a, into kind of an apathy? As if nothing will stop it anyways. At least not until the coming of the Lord Jesus in the final day. And so you just rest content that this is just the way things are. I want to suggest that as we look at Psalm 5 this morning, continuing our study in the Psalms throughout the summer, that the way that David would have prayed in light of these things, as we'll see in the Psalm, is that he understood that God was active and providential. His hand was at work in history and among the nations, even among his own enemies, as they raised themselves up against him, the anointed king. And he prays with full confidence that God is not only able to intervene, but that God will intervene and vindicate his glory, and his righteousness. And so as we continue our study, we did Psalm 4 last week. We'll do Psalm 5 this week. We'll do Psalm 6 next week. This fall, we're going to dive a little bit further into the Bible. We're going to begin our study through the book of Isaiah. Just for the summer, we're just going one psalm after another to see what the Lord would teach us. But here we are in Psalm 5. Let's begin in verse 1. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My God and my King, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. And in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch. 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Well, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. And let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Every single word is true. May he write it on our hearts by his grace that we would walk in it to his glory. If you're taking notes, the big idea of Psalm 5 is essentially this. It's my sermon in a sentence. When evil prevails, put your confidence in God. When evil prevails, put your confidence in God. In fact, that's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 3. Our first point is going to be to put your confidence in God. Then we're going to see in verses 4 through the end of the chapter, our second point, and that is that confidence comes from knowing God. So put your confidence in God, verses 1 through 3, and secondly, verses 4 through 12, know that your confidence comes from knowing this God. So put your confidence in God, knowing that your confidence comes from knowing God. Well, here Psalm 5 falls right in the middle of Psalm 2, or 3, 4, 5, and 6. In fact, Psalms 2 through 6 are all morning and evening psalms. You'll see each one of these psalms, the, the psalmist is praying either in the morning or he's praying in the evening. Psalms 3 and 5 are in the morning. Psalms 4 and 6 are in the evening. It's a good lesson for us that we should both begin and end our days going to God, orienting ourselves around His Word and His ways. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star. Well, here in Psalm 5, we're going to see essentially five stanzas in this psalm. Stanzas 1, 3, and 5 are essentially the psalmist standing face to face with God, acknowledging who he is in his glory. 
in stanzas two and four that just slot right in the middle of all of these God-centered stanzas are the psalmist looking down from God and looking out to the wicked and then comparing them in the second stanza to God and then in the fourth stanza comparing them to the righteous, that is, those who belong to God and seek to obey God. So he's concerned with the glory of God, he's looking at the wicked, and he's considering them in contrast to God and his glory and to those who belong to God and obey God. So here we have David waking up in the morning, facing what seems to be some kind of trial in his own life. And of course, the psalm is not clear on what's going on in David's life. We don't know the source of his trials. And the psalmist is intentional. And the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, well, I think that God leaves the circumstances ambiguous so that we would know that the promises and the practices that we see here are applicable in all kinds of circumstances whenever evil arises and confronts God and His people. That it's applicable in all kinds of situations. It might even be applicable in a situation that you're facing now. Not just to David's circumstance. But let's consider as we jump in verses 1 through 3. Point number 1. Put your confidence in God. Here we're going to see David do two things. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see David praying with urgency. And then in verse 3, we're going to see David praying with confidence. Just look at this, this, verses 1 and 2. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King, for to you do I pray. Look at some of the language here. Give ear, consider, give attention. David is urgent in his prayer. It's as if the first thing he does when he wakes up is go to God. Before he eats his oatmeal, before he puts on his clothes, perhaps before he ever rolls out of bed, he's going to God so that God might hear his cry. But I want you to notice also that in his urgency, David prays not only with spoken words. You see there in verse 1 that he prays with an unspoken groaning. And that groaning in verse 2 is followed by a loud crying. So what we see here in verses 1 and 2 is essentially the Christian version of the ugly cry. Right? David is just blubbering before the Lord. Doesn't even know what to say. It's just groaning. His spirit is so troubled. The circumstances are so difficult. Well, listen, people who don't know God think that they have to pray with special words or special rituals. Their prayers are are rote and formulaic. But if you know God, then you know, as David knows, that you can come to Him at any point and you don't have to put on your makeup. And like when somebody comes to the door and you're afraid to answer it because you're still in your pajamas and you got the bags under your eyes and the little crusties in the hair... You go, I cannot look at somebody else looking like this. If you know God and His grace, you can go to God without ever having to clean yourself up. In fact, God and His grace, as you approach the throne of grace, almost expects that we would come to Him with our ugly cry face. Because that's just the reality of our circumstances sometimes. It's not proving how tough we are. It's not even proving how faithful we are. 
It's just coming to God and going, I need you. Give ear to me, consider me, give attention to me. Well, David in verses 1 and 2 is able to pray this ultimately because he is confident in God. And that's what we see in verse 3, that he is praying with confidence. He's confident that God would hear his prayer and that God is going to answer his prayer. But notice here in verse 3 that David doesn't presume that even though God hears his prayer, that God is going to answer his prayer right away. So here we say in the morning at the beginning of the day, he prepares a sacrifice for God. Perhaps a better translation there, some of your translations say this, that he directed a prayer to God. But then look at what it says at the end of verse 3, and then he watched. That Hebrew word translated watched has the same sense of, of looking with expectation, eager expectation. It's, it's a word that embodies my own children whenever they know that their friends are coming over to, pr- to play or, or their Nona is coming to visit. That we have a giant bay window in, our, in one of our living rooms and it looks out to the front street and they stand and they stare out of the window in eager anticipation of Nona arriving. And then when the car pulls up, they're thrilled and they're excited and they open the door and they run out to see her at the end of the sidewalk. Well, that's the exact same thing that we see here. They don't know when she's coming. They just know that she's coming. And they're going to watch. And that's exactly what David does. I know you hear me. And I know you'll answer me. I don't know when you're going to do so. But I'm going to watch with eager expectation. This is what it looks like to be somebody that knows the faithfulness of God. One such person was George Miller. Many of you know him. He was 19th century evangelical who was responsible for starting many faith-based orphanages throughout Europe and especially England. Many of you know George Miller because his little book on prayer and his autobiography shows him as being an exemplary man of prayer. That's what he was known by, that he was a man of prayer. And so a staple book that many go to, to go to learn how to pray would be George Miller's example. Well, George Miller, who was a faithful man of God, who prayed faithfully and expectantly, just as we see here with David, understood exactly what David is saying. In fact, when George Miller was young, he began to pray for two of his closest friends who were not yet Christians. And he prayed for them faithfully for almost 60 years. Just think about that for a minute. How many of you have prayed for anything for 60 days waiting for the Lord to answer, much less 60 years? And yet he prayed and he watched expectantly, continuing to pray for six decades that God would be kind to save his closest friends. One of them was converted within a year of Miller's death and the other one was converted under the preaching of his final sermon right before he died. George Miller knew what it was to wake up in the morning, to have God hear his voice, to go to him in prayer, and to watch. What are you waiting for God to do right now? What are you waiting for God to do in terms of your own life? Perhaps it's the lifting of painful circumstances and trials. Perhaps it's a friend or a family member or a neighbor that you long to see come to know a saving knowledge of Christ 
Have you stopped praying for them? Have you lost hope for them? Have you perhaps grown apathetic in your ministry to them? Have you thought their heart perhaps is unusually too hard for God to soften and to change? Brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary. Let us be like like that persistent widow in Luke 18. I love the very beginning. Luke writes, and he told them a parable about this persistent widow. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, have you lost heart in your praying? Have you lost heart in praying for relief from physical pain? Have you lost heart in praying for the salvation of your family and friends? Have you lost heart in praying for our own nation and for the nations as you see men and governments raise up against the Lord's anointed and against His people? Have you just drifted into a mere apathy, almost a theological skepticism? Brothers and sisters, let us wake up in the morning, every morning, and let us go to God in prayer. And let's watch. Let us watch and let's wait. Let's go to God confidently. But why is it that David is so confident? Why is David so confident? Ultimately, David is confident because he knows who God is. And so what we're going to see is David and the rest of the psalm interacting with four aspects of God's character in this prayer. You're going to see how it forms the foundation for his confidence in going to God the way that he did in verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6, we're going to see that God is holy. God is holy. Then we're going to see in verses 7 and 8 that God is loving. That God is loving. Then we're going to see in verses 9 through 10 that God is just, that He is just. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that God is kind, that God is kind. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God is holy, that God is loving, that God is just, and that God is kind. Let's turn our attention to the text again, verse 4. And let's consider this first theological reality that, that secures David's two feet firmly on the ground as he goes to God, that God is holy. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. So here we have at the first foundation of this confident prayer, David is presenting God's holy anger at sin in six steps as in a staircase. This is one of those passages that we come to it, we just kind of wince a little bit because it rubs like, a, like petting a cat backwards, the way that we as evangelicals like to often think about God. And yet it's in the text. This is why we preach through 
books of the Bible. This is why we preach through verses of the Bible because we don't want to escape any part of the Bible. We want to see God as he's revealed himself in the whole counsel of his word, even when sometimes it kind of rubs us the wrong way or makes us uncomfortable. That we would stand and be judged by God's word and not stand in judgment over God's word. And that's what we aim to do now by his grace. And I want you to notice these six things in verses four through six. Number one in verse four, notice first of all that God doesn't delight in wickedness. God does not think that sin is fun or funny. He doesn't find it attractive or entertaining in any way. What, God is, what, what David is doing is contrasting God with the gods of the nations around them that, that took delight in, in abominations and wickedness. That God is holy in a way that these other gods are not holy, but we also consider that God is holy in a way that we are not holy. Consider how unlike us God is. We might chuckle when that awkward couple hooks up in a sitcom. We laugh at the gossip and, and the jealousy and reality television. And yet the reality is, is that as we are entertained by sin, we are slowly desensitized to sin. I remember years ago, my wife and I, we were young marrieds, and we had a friend of ours who came to visit us. She was moving out to California, and she at the time had fallen away from the Lord, had, was not trusting in His Word, had had thrown herself into a life of disobedience and of sin. And we met with her and we were counseling her. And I remember she was sitting on our couch right before she was leaving California and we were exhorting her to consider God's holiness, the seriousness with which he takes sin. And, he, and she just looked at us and said, you know, I like to picture God as just looking at me and thinking, you're so cute. You are such a silly girl. That is not how God looks at sin. And David is confronting that mentality. It is dangerous to think that God is like us in any way with respect to his holy response to sin. He's not just a, a bigger, more sanitized version of us. He's not one who delights just a little bit less. He does not delight at all. He doesn't delight in wickedness ever. But notice, secondly, not only does God not delight in wickedness, but God cannot dwell with evil. That word dwell in Hebrew means to sojourn or to visit. It paints a picture of a, of a nomad passing through and living in a tent. One commentator put it this way, that God is so incompatible with sin that even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. There's no sojourning for sin in the presence of God. And that is because God's holiness is active. It purifies everything that comes in contact with him. That is why the author to the Hebrews confesses that God is a consuming fire. So this week, uh, my wife and I, we were grilling chicken. And she marinated it, left it in a marinade that was really, really good. Kind of a barbecue-y, you know, zesty, tangy marinade. That's all irrelevant. Don't pay attention to that. <laughs> and I put it down on the, 
on the grill and and you know, when the marinade begins to drip down onto the coals, what happens? Does it put the coals out? No, what it does is the coals and the heat causes all that marinade to just go up in smoke. That is what the holiness of God is like. That sin cannot coexist with it. Evil cannot dwell in God's presence because His holiness actively consumes sin like coals consume marinade. It can't even sojourn for a second. And so God's intolerance of evil was David's hope as he prayed, just as it is for us. David knew as he prayed that evil will not win because evil cannot exist in God's presence and God is eternal, evil is not. All evil has an expiration date, which means that all suffering in your life that comes by evil has an expiration date. Do you believe that? It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but even as we pray and look and wait, verse 3, we do so confidently knowing that evil has an expiration date. And that's David's confidence. But look at also thirdly, verse 5, that God will not tolerate the arrogant. He says, the boastful won't stand before your eyes. When David's enemies were getting their way, well, they got a little bit of swag to them. They began to dance a little bit. But David knew that they're dancing. Oh, it's going to be short-lived. Some of you have seen what many people have argued is the greatest play in the history of college football. 1982, Stanford versus the University of California. If you're not a football fan here, I'll try to explain the game the best I can in a brief amount of time. I know many of you are artists and musicians, and we forgive you for those things. So, Stanford kicks a field goal to take a one-point lead with four seconds left. And if you know anything about football, that's the ball game. Ain't no way you're coming back with four seconds left. All right? You do a kickoff. As the ball's in the air on the kickoff, time's going to run out. And unless you're able to somehow run the ball through 11 defenders all the way 100 yards to the other end of the field, you're not going to win. So it's not a very good bet. So Stanford kicks this field goal. They got a one-point lead with four seconds left. They kick off to Cal, and Cal does the unprecedented. They begin to, every time one guy gets it, he laterals back to another guy. So they're playing kind of like hot potato, you know, with the, with the football, keeping it away from the defense so that none of their guys can be tackled. And that doing one lateral pass effectively in football is practically impossible, but Cal did it five times avoiding all the defenders all the way down the field. Only what made this feat so amazing was not only that they had lateraled five times, but as they were doing it, the Stanford band had already come onto the field to celebrate Stanford's victory. And so as they're lateraling the ball, these football players are literally in this kind of Monty Python scene trucking through the Stanford band. Knocking the little poor band kids down everywhere they were. And when the last player to touch the ball, his name was Kevin Moen, got all the way to the end zone, you can watch the video, he literally spikes the ball on the head of a trombone player. <laughs> the same image is here. David's enemies are dancing. They're on the field and they're celebrating 
but they're celebrating too early. And David knows that they're not going to win. He knows that God, in a sense, is going to get the final score. He's going to get the final say. And those who are standing and celebrating, just like that Stanford band, are all going to fall. And that's David's confidence. Today, the same wicked throw parades and even set aside entire months to show their pride and their wickedness. They celebrate and they dance and they provoke God to his face. And that does not move us to apathy, but it moves us to pray as David prays. And these men and women in our nation and around the world, they boast because they think that they've won. And perhaps, culturally speaking, perhaps they have won. Perhaps the culture war is over. But cultural victories are short-lived victories because God wins in the end. And those who boast in sin and provoke God to his face will not finally stand before him. And so the boastful will not stand. But look, fourthly, God hates those who do evil. Psalm 5 puts it bluntly. God hates the wicked. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. If you were to do a survey through the Proverbs, you would see that Proverbs 6, God hates their actions. Proverbs 15, he hates their ways and their worship and their thoughts. Proverbs, uh, and then here we see in Psalm 5 and 11 that he hates their wickedness, that, that God hates it. That's a strong word, isn't it? Sounds strange. I mean, aren't we to, to hate the sin but love the sinner? Isn't that what God does? Doesn't the Bible teach that God so loved the world? Is John teaching about a different God than David is praying about here? You know, it's interesting. We run so quickly to John 3.16, and it's true. God has so loved the world to sustain it in such a way that he would send his own son so that those who would repent and trust in him would be saved. But we find that what they're being saved from later on in John chapter 3 is the wrath of God to come against sin. That one doesn't show up on very many posters at football games. And so this makes us a little uncomfortable. But why is it that God hates wicked people? Well, we see at least three things in the Bible. Number one, because wicked people hate God. That Hebrew verb here translated evildoers, it's a participle. If you know what a participle is, for those of you who are grammar technicians, a participle participates in a verb. It explains it, describes it, right? And so in this way, what it's saying is that evildoers is not just a, a simple action that they're doing. It is describing their way of life. It, it characterizes them. It is, it is one for whom sin is a way of life. And that life shows contempt for God, hate for God, and hate for His Word. Secondly, because wicked people hate God's image bearers. As we see fleshed out here in the psalm and elsewhere through the Scriptures, it's because they, for their own gain, would hurt others, harm others, maim others, and kill others. And God hates that, as we see at the end of verse 7, that God hates the bloodthirsty. But thirdly, because wicked people hate God's elect. 
that they turn their fury against God's people, mocking them and persecuting them and putting them to death. And so we have to be confronted with the whole counsel of Scripture, however uncomfortable it may be for us, and we have to ask the hard question, if God hates wicked people, not just the wicked things that they do, but wicked people, because you cannot separate one from the other, we are what we do, So the Bible teaches concerning sin. It's not something outside of us. It's something that comes from inside of us. That for God to hate the sin is to hate, in one sense, the sinner. Well, then what is God going to do to the wicked? Hold your Bible right there and go over maybe one or two pages to Psalm 7. Look at verse 11. These sobering verses. It says here, Psalm 7, beginning in verse 11, God is a righteous judge. He will never cast a false judgment. And a God who feels indignation every day. If a man doesn't repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The old wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made and his mischief returns on his own head and his own skull, violence descends. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. You cannot understand God's goodness in saving sinners unless you understand God's goodness to judge sinners. God is good to judge We can never grasp the greatness of God's love and His mercy until we come to grips with His hatred and His wrath towards sin and sinners. This is not a fashionable message. This will not get five million YouTube hits. But it's the bedrock of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, now that we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, by sending his son to die as a sinless substitute for sinners, God did not ultimately just save you from sin, and he didn't save you from hell. The good news of the gospel is that if you are in Christ, God has saved you from himself, for himself, forever. God is the biggest thing to fear because of your sin, not your sin and not hell. Hell is hell because God will be there forever, And his holiness will burn against your unrepentant sin for eternity. Hell is not separation from God. God is omnipotent. God will be there in all of his holy fury against those who refuse to acknowledge his kingship and to throw themselves on the mercy of his son. Listen, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I know that there's a part of you that maybe feels like this message Sounds kind of like those crazy Westboro Baptist people who, who march around with signs saying that God hates people. As much as I hate to agree with them and I don't agree with them, they are merely quoting 
the Bible. And we've got to come to grips with that. That God hates sinners and he's good to judge them. But the good news of the gospel is that that sword that he wet, he laid on his own son. That sword that he wet for the wickedness of any man or woman who has raised themselves against him and his word, he turns that sword against his own son so that justice could be paid on your behalf should you repent and trust in Christ. The sword doesn't disappear. Christ takes it on your behalf. But then we see, fifthly, fifth step here, verse six, God destroys liars. You see that there? Back in Psalm five? That God destroys liars. He takes lying seriously because God takes truth seriously. Why is it that God hates lying? It's because God is a speaking God. And he spoke creation into existence and language was his gift to us from the very beginning. And since you and I are created in the image of God, we are to reflect God. And so when we fail to speak in ways that are true as God is true, we fail to reflect God as God is. And so one of the ways that we're to reflect God is by how we speak. Our words reflect God in his word. But sin came into the world, you remember, in Genesis 3 through Satan, sin came into the world through words. And has ultimately corrupted the way that we use words. That's why James says that the tongue is a restless evil. And it's significant that when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw God in his glory sitting on his throne above the temple, he summarized his sinfulness by saying, I am a man of unclean lips. God's holiness means that he deals drastically with, with liars. And this was a comfort to David because David's enemies had lied about him. They were spreading slanderous words. But as one person put it, truth and time are best friends. And that God will one day expose them in their lies. And that is David's confidence. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, Jesus says on the day of judgment, every person will give an account for every careless word they speak. Words matter. And then finally, verse 6, God abhors murderers and deceivers. He hates those who destroy others by stealing their life, murderers, and he hates those who steal their livelihood, deceivers. That word deceiver is literally like a con artist who takes all of their livelihood away and God abhors both of them. And so here we are in verses 4 through 6. We're going to spend most of our time there it's sobering to look back at these six steps of God's holiness. Because you and I can't read these words without realizing that we fall short of the righteousness of God. Which is why we should be really glad that Psalm 5 doesn't end in verse 6. That the God's wrath against sin is not the last word. In fact, David's own life bears this out. You remember that David himself lied to the king of Gath not once but twice and deceived the king of Gath not once but twice. He's violating the very thing that he says that God hates. He lied to Ahimelech the priest and in his lying to Ahimelech the priest, you remember, it led to the slaughter of 85 of Ahimelech's fellow priests. That's blood on David's hands. He's bloodthirsty according to his own words. And when he sinned with Bathsheba, he committed both murder and deception. 
So David is guilty of verse 6. But look at the first two words of verse 7. But I. The David here sets himself apart, not because he is in and of himself righteous, but look at why he sets himself apart. But I am set apart from this wicked, not because I myself am not a sinner, but because your steadfast love is abundant. That's what sets me apart. That word steadfast love in some of your translations may be translated mercy or loving kindness. It refers to God's covenant loyalty and committed love to his people. And so David is confident that God will hear him not because David is good, but because God is good. David is confident that God will hear his cries and will answer him not because David so loves God, but because God loves David according to promises that he has made. And yet the world rejects God's love just like it rejects God's holiness. And we as those in the world, we do this at least in one of two ways. We do it, number one, I think through irreligion. Those who do it through irreligion would say, well, I'm not even going to try to please God. I'm just going to keep on living the way that I want. They confess that God is loving. Yes, God loves me, but he's more like a doting grandfather that doesn't matter how many times you land in juvie, he's still going to give you a piece of candy. But that's not the way that God is. Their understanding of God's love does little more than the grant them license for sin. I can do whatever I want because God's going to love me no matter what. Or on the other hand, you have those who are perhaps aren't given to irreligion, but those who are given to moralism. They would say, if I do the right things and I clean up my life, well, then God will be pleased with me and bless me. And so they obey carefully so that they don't have to depend on God's love in the way that David is depending on God's love. They come to Jesus to just fill in the gaps between the good things that they do to earn God's approval. The way that you might go in and, you know, and to, and to squeeze that stuff into the cracks of your own home so you keep air from getting out. Well, that's kind of where we fit God's love in and in the kind of the cracks and crevices of all of our good works. It's more supplemental than anything. Flannery O'Connor in her novel, Wise Blood, any Flannery O'Connor people out there, anyways, you should read her, she's good. Flannery O'Connor in her novel, Wise Blood, her main character, her name's Hazel Motes, says this at one point. She says, the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. That is moralism. But to embrace God's love is to humble ourselves before God. It's to recognize that we can only enter God's presence, as we see here, enter His house, enter His temple by His grace, by His covenant and faithful love that's ultimately been enacted and fulfilled in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus. It's to recognize that God's love motivates our holiness, that it leads us like David to bow down. It leads us like David to fear God, not fear of reprisal, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the kind of fear that recognizes that in Christ we know who God really is, and that motivates us and energizes us and moves us to put sin to death so that we might be holy as God is holy. That Christ enables us to do that. His love motivates us to do that. It motivates us to ask God to lead us in righteousness and to make His path straight before us, verse 8. So we've seen that God is holy and yet God is loving. We're here in verses 9 through 10, we're going to see that God is just. In verse 9, David's going to lay out the evidence and then in verse 10, he's going to lay his final argument. Look at this. 
He turns back and gazes at his enemies. There's no truth in their mouth, he says. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. It seems like David's enemies have been lying about him in order to perhaps overthrow him as king. And David traces the source of their lying to their hearts. Do you see that? Their inmost self is destruction. At the end of the day, it's not just political circumstances. It's not just national maneuvering. It's not just, you know, politics as usual. He understands that where this is coming from is from hearts that are deeply in rebellion against God and His Word and His anointed. And he illustrates it with a vivid image. Do you see that? He says their throats are an open grave. The words coming out of their mouths, the, the slander and the lies, it's like stench from a rotting corpse. That when they speak and open their mouths, it's like the opening of a casket. And so even though David's enemies are many, I want you to notice something. All of these words here that we see, here in verses 9 and 10, mouth, inmost self, throat, tongue, every single one of these in verse 9, are in the singular, not in the plural. That even though David's foes are many, they are united in one voice against him and against God. And so in verse 10, David then turns against, turns back to God, and he says this, Make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Here's David's final argument. It is an imprecatory prayer, a prayer for God to judge his enemies. He wants, him, he wants God to judge the wicked. In a sense, David is not so much pleading his character, he's pleading his case. But I wonder, since we so often emphasize God's mercy, and rightly so, it sounds strange, doesn't it? Almost even cruel when David asks God to cast out his enemies. And so what is it that we should make of this? How do we make sense of it? Well, David's anger toward his enemies, you've got to understand, first of all, is not personal. You notice in here that David is not ultimately personally offended. David's primary concern in the verse 10 is that they have rebelled against you. No less than God's glory is at stake. So David isn't just easily offended. David's not just having kind of a whiny, fit-throwing baby moment. Well, they're saying mean things about me. He's going, they're rebelling against you. Your glory is their greatest good and they're rejecting the greatest good and insofar as they're misleading others away from your glory and your work, they are leading others away from their greatest good. Oh God, you gotta stop this, is what he's saying. Because he trusts that God is not just the God of the therapeutic deist that stands off and doesn't interact with the world that he's put into place. We're primarily concerned with our own emotional well-being that God is a God that upholds everything by the power of his word and is guiding everything to his ultimately ordained ends and he is able to intervene. David believes it and that's why he's praying it. And the same is true today. Every single attack against God's church is an attack against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every attack against the gospel is an attack against God himself. And on the one hand, such prayers that we see David praying here in verse 10 are only appropriate for David to pray and not for us to pray. 
But there's another sense in which the way that David is praying in verse 10 is entirely appropriate for us to pray. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, such prayers are appropriate for David to pray and not for us. And so we have to recognize that Psalm 5 in context has David as an anointed king. He is holding a unique place in redemptive history. And he serves as a dim shadow of a greater anointed king to come, Jesus Christ. And so we see not only in his throne a shadow of a greater throne and a greater king, but we see in his words the shadow of perfect words to be spoken by a perfect king, the Lord's anointed. And in that way, he fulfills a unique place in God's redemptive purposes that you and I don't fill. And so we shouldn't flatter ourselves by thinking that we're somehow in David's place or should pray as David prays in this way. Instead, we should, as Jesus said, bless our enemies and ask God to save our enemies, just like, just like God saved Paul. But on the other hand, we should pray exactly as David prays. As I said before, David isn't so much pleading his character I'm so much more righteous, so therefore vindicate me. He wants God to vindicate his own righteousness for the good of others. He's pleading his not his character, but his case. And he believes that God is providential in history. And he prays that God would cause those who, who rage against his kingdom, you notice this, to fall by their own counsel. That is why in my pastoral prayer, I prayed from verses 9 and 10, when I prayed against the California legislature, when I prayed for the lies that were spoken in the Democratic debates, and I prayed against the Chinese government for raising their resources and their energies against the Lord's anointed and His people. What I'm saying is I know that you are the God of history, and I want you to vindicate your righteousness in the vindication of your people. Because as long as people stand and put their face against you and the anointed King, Jesus, and against your word, and as long as they continue to speak lies that mislead people away from those things, that they are leading people away from their greatest good. That cannot persist. And so as long as they cobble together and seek counsel together, and they think their own wisdom is sufficient, oh God, would you show their wisdom to be corrupt? Would you show their counsel to be incomplete? Would you show it to be powerless? Would you show it to be foolishness? And so in this way, we pray the way that David prays, that God would humble them, that God would put them down, that God would cast them out, that he would humiliate them for the vindication of his glory and the good of others. So David isn't praying in a self-righteous spirit. Listen, I'm so great. I'm tired of these people bothering me. David is praying for God to cause his enemies to fall so that in their humiliation they would see the folly of their wickedness and they would find mercy from God in Christ. Which is what we see in the final two verses. That God is kind. That all who take refuge in you rejoice and let them sing for joy. Notice that it goes from David speaking of himself in the singular. He's not saying, I take refuge. I sing for joy. I rejoice. He's talking to the whole congregation, which would include the wicked that he just prayed against. He's calling them to turn from sin and to trust in this Lord who would be their refuge. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you for you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as a shield. 
Here God's justice is met by God's generous kindness to sinners. And here David broadens his prayer and encourages anyone and everyone to take refuge in God, even if they themselves have been enemies of God. Because in Christ, God turns enemies into friends. It means taking refuge in God, as David says, here isn't like finding shelter every once in a while in a rainstorm. It's not just needing God whenever dark clouds gather every once in a while. It means committing the whole of your life and the whole of your destiny to God and relying on His power and relying on His protection. That's what it is to have God as your refuge. This is the essence of saving faith, trusting God in this way. That everyone who runs to Him will find joy and protection and favor. When Martin Luther was making his way to Augsburg to appear before Cardinal Cajetan and answer for his supposedly heretical writings, one of the cardinal's servants asked him, where will you find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, that is the one who supports you financially and otherwise, what would you do if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? Luther answered, I would find shelter under the shelter of heaven. That's what David's praying. That when every man around us should fail, God will not fail us. When every shelter that we would trust in is blown away by evil in this world, God will be our shelter. Because we have been hidden in Christ and we are secure in Him. Put your confidence in God. Be confident in who God is because in Christ we've come to know God as holy yet loving, as just and yet kind. He is our King and our God.